0: One of life's challenges is finding something the whole family want to watch on TV. Uh, With Karen and uh, myself, I don't know if you have this problem, uh, we flick through 30 to 40 free-to-air channels, we look through the SBS app, we look through the ABC iview app, we look through Netflix, we look through Stan. I can find things to watch, Karen can find things to watch, but the trick is finding something we both want to watch. And so what we've been doing lately is if one person suggests something and the other one's not convinced, we'll say, we'll give it five minutes. Uh, If we're both still interested after five minutes, well, then we'll keep watching. Uh, If not, eh, it's gone, we'll look for something else. We'll give it five minutes. I think most of us are like that, at least with some things. If something hasn't grabbed our attention in five minutes, move on. And I think, if that's the case, for most of us then, the start of Matthew's Gospel is a very strange way to begin. (laughs) And if we didn't know that it got better after, we probably would just give up and move on, wouldn't we? It's a great long list of names. Don did pretty well getting through them, I thought. Well done, Don. Uh, Most of which we've never heard of. Many of them we have trouble pronouncing. It's hardly the start that's going to grab people's attention and make them want to keep reading. Uh, The trick is to read it with Jewish eyes. To read it not as the start of a story, but as part two of a story. A story that continues the story that's been told for thousands of years. The story that's recorded in the 39 books of the Old Testament as God acted in history, especially for the Jewish nation. You see, for a Jewish reader, this is not a boring list of unpronounceable names. Uh, Firstly, it's a record of God's faithfulness. It's like a school report. We love to read a school report, don't we? Uh, Or a resume, or a curriculum vitae. This is like a drum roll. This is like a fanfare of trumpets. This is like a great parade of people marching down the street, down through history, and each one is pointing to God and his faithful, powerful goodness. There are those at the front of the parade, there are those at the middle, but all eyes are on the one who comes in the position of greatest honour right at the end. Or, because Matthew begins this way, all eyes are on the one who appears right at the beginning. Jesus. Uh, Matthew's whole book is about him. Verse 1 begins a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, verse 1, obviously, we learn about a couple of Jesus' ancestors, and there are plenty more who'll follow. But more importantly, in verse 1, we learn when we look with Jewish eyes to see the God who keeps his promises. Because two of God's greatest promises were made to King David and to Abraham. To David, God promised to raise up one of his descendants and to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. To Abraham, God blessed him and promised to make his descendants into a nation. And then he said that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's family line all nations of the world now those are two big promises and here in verse 1 we see that Jesus is the answer to both of them the descendant of David whose kingdom would rule forever the descendant of Abraham the one through whom God would bless the world if the story of the Old Testament was about promises that God had made then here in verse 1 of the New Testament we see promises kept promises kept But before we move on to verse 2, let's think about each of those ancestors. Firstly, son of David. It's quite a revolutionary claim for Matthew to make. These are dangerous words for Matthew. You see, the last son of David had been on the throne six centuries earlier. He'd been led off to Babylon in chains. And the current king, as Matthew writes this stuff down, King Herod, was Rome's appointee. He was no descendant of David. In fact, he wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. But here's Jesus introduced as a genuine son of David. The Jews had been waiting for a genuine son of David for centuries. Someone who would bring back David's glory days. They were waiting for God to deliver on his promise. Listen, for example, to how Isaiah described this coming son of David. From Isaiah chapter 9, it's written 500 years before Jesus is born. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, verses we often hear read this time of year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, how good does that promise sound? A new king bringing in a new kingdom, a kingdom that's all about peace and justice and stability. It's no wonder people were waiting for God to deliver on a promise like that. And here's Matthew in his very first sentence announcing that this one has arrived. And as we keep reading through Matthew, he goes on to describe how people uh, had received this one they'd been waiting for, how they received Jesus. Uh, So, for example, there's there's two blind men in chapter 9. Their world permanently in darkness, but God had promised Isaiah 35 that when the Messiah came, the eyes of the blind would be opened. They were waiting for this Messiah to come who would open their eyes. And so when they hear that Jesus is walking down the street, they call out in verse 27, have mercy on us, son of David. They knew who they were calling out for. And he does have mercy. God has raised up a descendant of David and he's healed them. He heals these blind men and they they can't keep the news to themselves. A few chapters further on, uh, we meet a Canaanite woman. Her family life is worse than we can imagine. And she's longing for some relief. She says to Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. She's not even Jewish. But she's desperately waiting for God's promised Jewish king, who in Isaiah 61 had been promised to release captives. He's going to release captives. And she calls out to this son of David. And Jesus does. She sets this tortured girl free. A few chapters further on, in chapter 21, Jesus marches into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Jerusalem, the city of King David. And the crowd rejoiced that God's kept his promise. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, who to? To the son of David. They're waiting. They've been waiting for David's son for centuries. And he's arrived. And it's time to celebrate. They must have almost given up hope. But then, David, but then God is faithful and he delivers on his promise. And Matthew's point here in verse 1 is that now 14 generations later, after the return from exile in God's perfect time the son of God comes and he sets prisoners free and he delivers desperate people and he gives sight to the blind just as God's promised but David's not just son of uh, sorry Jesus is not just son of David uh, he's also the son of Abraham we're still in verse 1 uh, which means he hasn't just come for Jews it's interesting because Matthew's gospel is traditionally described or often described as a the gospel that's written with a Jewish focus. But Jesus hasn't just come for Jews. He's come for people of every nation. And Matthew reminds us of that here by telling us that he's the son of Abraham. Genesis 22, God promised Abraham that through his offspring the whole world would be blessed. Uh, And that has come true in Jesus. Now that's good news for those of us who are anything but Jewish, which I think is all of us. Uh, Aussies and Chinese and Scots and Brits and Malaysians and Irish. Everything God promised Israel, it's available for us as well. Jesus came not just to bless Jews, but to bless the nations. Matthew gives us a taste. We've said it's mostly to Jews. Uh, He's written mostly for Jews. But in chapter 8, for example, we meet a Roman centurion. Uh, He trusts Jesus to heal his servant, who's some distance away. And he says to Jesus, just say the word. I know what it means to have authority and to be under authority. You just say the word. And Jesus does. And Jesus says to this Gentile guy, I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Chapter 15, the Canaanite woman we just mentioned, the one who calls out to the son of David. She wants Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. Jesus tests her by announcing that he's only come for the lost sheep of Israel. And this Canaanite woman replies, but even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She recognises she only needs crumbs of Jesus' power. That's all she needs, crumbs. And Jesus commends her and says, 1528, Woman, you have great faith. Same thing that the centurion had. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed. Matthew has announced to us Jesus as the one who would bless the nations. And then he's shown us how we can receive that blessing. By following the example of the centurion and the Canaanite woman, we need to look to him in our need and we need to trust him. Well, that's verse 1. Verse 1's showing us a God who keeps promises. Just in case you're wondering, we're going to be here for a long time. We are going to speed up considerably. We've made it past verse 1. From verse 2 onwards, uh, verse 1, we've seen the God who keeps promises. Verse 2 on we see the God of purpose. The God of purpose who has a plan and then works it out. Uh, Verse 2 begins with Abraham and then it counts off his descendants. From Abraham through to King David, all sorts of names that I'm not going to read out. Don's done it for us. And we get to 14. David is the 14th. Then from King David to Jeconiah and the exile to Babylon. That's another 14. Matthew chooses 14. If David's the first, then Josiah is the 14th. And then he breaks it up and gives us another third set of 14 from the exile through to Jesus. If Josiah is number one, then Jesus is number 14. Three sets of 14, or if you like, six sets of seven. Jesus begins the seventh seven. What's the point of all the numbers? Well, by choosing 14 or by choosing 7, I think one of Matthew's points is to highlight God's perfect control of history. God's perfect control of history. Seven is God's number, his thumbprint is across all of history. We've got four great events in Israel's history, each separated by 14. God is in control, he perfectly plans it, he perfectly brings it to pass. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing overwhelms him. Nothing makes him adjust his plans. Changed plans. It's been a year of changed plans, hasn't it? (laughs) A year of changed plans. Uncertain times. If I never hear that phrase again, it won't be too soon. Karen and I had planned to take a couple of months, long service leave overseas this year. Well, changed plans. It didn't turn out that way. Uh, Josh planned to be in... uh, England this time hasn't turned out yet. He's hoping to be there by the end of the year. At church, we'd planned all sorts of things. We'd planned certain programs for K-Central Kids Club. We'd planned movie nights. We'd planned a church big day out. But plans change. We don't know the future. We can't control the future. But if there's one lesson to learn from this year, it's that there's very little we can actually control about our lives. We can't control our health, we can't control our job security, we can't control our ability to move from place to place as we want. But over all of that, God is in control. How can I be so sure God is in control of those uncontrollables, those things that take us by surprise? How can I be sure? Well, I want to highlight five women on this list five women on the list. I wonder if you noticed them. There's lots of men, uh, but there are also five women and luckily their names are easier to pronounce than some of the men. Matthew's gone against every convention to put the women in there. Most lists like this uh, never included any women. But what's even more remarkable than the fact that there are some women is the type of women that are included. The first four are all Gentiles... Three of the four are either prostitutes or adulteresses. These these women are the skeletons in the closet of Jesus' background. So first up, uh, there's Tamar. She's there in verse 3. You'll find her story in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite woman who married one of Judah's sons. Uh, The son died. Later on, she pretended to be a prostitute. She she seduced her father-in-law, Judah, and became pregnant to him and had twins. One of those sons became the ancestor to King David and subsequently of Jesus. But God knew all of that. It was all within his perfect plan of sevens. Next up there's Rahab. She's there in verse five. You'll find her story in Joshua chapter two. She's also a Canaanite woman. She lived with her family in Jericho and she was a prostitute. She hid two of Joshua's spies when they came to check out the city. She saved their lives. They told her to tie a scarlet cord from her window so that when Joshua's army attacked, they'd spare her family. And Matthew here tells us that one of Rahab's children was Boaz. Now, who was Boaz? Boaz. Well, it just so happened that Boaz married another Gentile, her name was Ruth, and she was from Moab. She gets a mention there in verse 5 as well. Now, there are no real skeletons in Ruth's cupboard, in fact, she's painted as one of the most virtuous women in the Bible, but she was from Moab, one of Israel's historic enemies. Deuteronomy 23 says that no one from Moab is allowed to enter into the temple, even down to the 10th generation. Now that's the third woman on Matthew's list, a Gentile outcast. She's the great-grandmother of King David. And the fourth woman is there in verse 6. She's not even named. She's King Solomon's mother, Uriah's wife, King David had an affair with her. You'll find her story in 2 Samuel 11. Her name's Bathsheba. And since she's married to Uriah the Hittite, she's probably a Gentile as well. She's probably from uh, a Hittite. On top of that, she was an adulteress, as was David, King David, a Gentile adulteress. But her son was Solomon. God blessed him greatly. Uh, He built the temple And Bathsheba was also an ancestor of Jesus. So four women, all ancestors of Jesus, all with suspicious backgrounds, either born in the wrong place or morally flawed. Jesus came from people like that. What's Matthew's point? Well, one point, I think, is to prepare us for the the suspicious background of Jesus himself. Born to an unwed mother, with a scandalous pregnancy, Joseph was ready to divorce her until he had a message from an angel. We'll think about Jesus' birth in a moment. But here's another point. Uh, God's perfect plans included those unexpected deviations. God's perfect plans of 14 were not unexpected for God. Uh, they didn't in- he knew these things would, would come up. Your unexpected events are not unexpected to God either. He's in control of them as well, working all things for good. Here's another point I think these women teach us. Uh, Jesus has come for all sorts of people. He's come for everyone. His rescue mission is not just for the worthy. He hasn't just come for the good, the rich, the well-born or the well-connected. He's come for people with scandals in their background because that's Jesus. Jesus has scandals in his background. That's good news for the blind men who were waiting for the son of David. It's good news for the little girl possessed by a demon. It's good news for us, for those of us with skeletons in our closet, secrets we're ashamed of, sins that are controlling us, habits we can't shake. In fact, he's only come for those of us who recognise our sin and our need for sick people, not for those people who don't think they need a doctor. No one is beyond the reach of the son of David. He's come to save and to heal and to clean all nations, wherever your background, whatever your background. No one's too far away. Uh, but there's one final woman that's mentioned. Did you notice her? She's right down there at the end. It's Mary. Uh, Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Uh, Now notice how carefully Matthew describes this tricky relationship. Uh, Because Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus. All the way through we've seen was the father of, was the father of, was the father of. But here we get Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Uh, The facts of this case are almost beyond description, aren't they? Uh, Beyond understanding that God's spirit was over a young girl, Mary, a virgin, so that she was with child. There was a union between God and man, and Jesus was born the God-man. This son of David, this son of Abraham, this son of Gentile women was also, in some way that we'll understand more of as we keep reading, also the son of God. Of the same essence and being as the Father. He was born as a baby, but his home was heaven. There were other sons of David, there were thousands of other sons of Abraham. There were millions of other sons of Gentile women but there's only been one son of God. One perfect life. One perfect sacrifice. One way back to the Father. And he came according to God's perfect plan, his perfect schedule, fully man, complete with dodgy ancestors but also fully God born without human father. This is the one Matthew introduces us to here in this long list of names. Jesus, the answer to all our questions, the solution to all our problems, the fulfilment of all God's promises. And we can know him and love him and serve him. What a gift to celebrate at this time of year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his miraculous birth. We thank you for promises kept. Help us as the Roman centurion, as the Canaanite mother, to look to you, look to Jesus, and to trust him as the Son of David, our King, our Saviour, our Lord. I mean